You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of land and waters that this podcast is recorded on. This episode contains graphic depictions of violent crimes, pedophilia and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. Eileen Warnos stares down the barrel of the camera, her eyes looking almost black. Her mousy brown hair is pushed back, revealing a pink face. But the most notable thing about the mugshot, taken in front of a bright blue backdrop, is the expression on her face. A snarl. Like she is a moment from breaking out into laughter. She would go on to say, I'm one who seriously hates human life and would kill again. I really got tired of it all. I was angry about the Johns. I have hate crawling through my system. Eileen Warnos has been called America's boogie woman, a monster, and history's most terrifying female killer. From a childhood of abandonment and abuse to a tragic end in 2002, this is the story of Eileen Warnos. I'm Jessie Stevens, and this is True Crime Conversations, a Mamma Mia podcast exploring the world's most notorious crimes by speaking to the people who know the most about them. And this month, we're looking specifically at women who kill. In today's episode, I'm speaking with investigative historian Peter Vronsky, the author of four best-selling criminal histories, including Female Serial Killers, how and why women become monsters. Eileen Warnos was born in Michigan in 1956. Can you tell us a little bit about her upbringing? It's a very sad and in a way typical story in the world of serial homicide, whether it's a male perpetrator or a female perpetrator. Eileen Wernus is born in a suburb of Detroit, a very unstable family. Her father is very young. He's a teenager, a delinquent. He's in prison by the time Eileen is born. I believe he ends his life in suicide. Her mother, Diane, is also troubled. Eileen also has an older brother as well, Keith, who I think will eventually pass away from cancer, if I'm not mistaken. But Diane, the mother herself, is very young too. She's even younger than the father. She's maybe around 16 when she has Eileen. In any case, she can't really handle raising two kids, and she just leaves her kids, Eileen and Keith, with her parents, who end up adopting the children. And as far as the record goes, or at least, you know, as far as we know, as Eileen recounted it, it was a very abusive upbringing. Her grandfather apparently had abused her sexually and you know, by the time Eileen is 10, she's already thoroughly victimized. 
no sense of family, no sense of support, everything that motivated children who become motivated adults have. And so essentially, she is a wild child. She begins having sexual encounters with boys, very young age, perhaps as young as 11. She's nicknamed Cigarette Pig because she'll kiss boys or have sex with boys for, you know, cigarettes or minor things. That's the beginning, essentially, a kind of very hurt, broken child that's going to become this broken adult. Eileen, eventually as well, she will become pregnant. She'll bear a child, and the child has been given up for adoption. She engaged in sex work from a pretty young age. What do we know about the early instances of violence and crime that existed in her early life? She has a long list of criminal convictions that she is collecting under various pseudonyms. Some of them are violent crimes, assault and battery, armed robbery, a lot of, you know, drunken disorderly, DUI charges. She's got already in an early period a uh, charge for prohibited possession of a firearm. And of course, her use of firearms is one thing that is going to distinguish her as, you know, this new type or new generation of female serial killers. But she does have certainly this collection of offenses that partly are motivated for material gain, robbery, but also are triggered behaviorally, uh, you know, assault, for example. She is raging. She has this hair-triggered temper. And it's no mystery when you look at her childhood biography why she is this angry young woman. Absolutely. And did she have romantic relationships with men as a young woman or were they all sort of transactional? It's hard to say. I mean, you know, all relationships are to some degree transactional, you know, whether emotionally or or materially. She does enter into relationships with men as a young woman. She's an attractive young woman in the sense of, you know, conventionally attractive. We have all impressions and memories of Eileen Werner's as we saw her after her arrest, after, you know, a decade of the kind of life she led. But she's this, you know, refined, pretty young woman when you look at earlier photographs of her and she ends up in Florida and in Daytona she starts up I guess around somewhere in the early 1980s a casual relationship with a man who's much older than her she moves in with him they apparently live like a happy couple for several months and then, you know, they argue mm. and uh, she loses her temper, right? And she drives off in the car that he had restored for her. She buys all, all this uh, beer. She goes essentially on the rampage. She buys a twenty-two handgun at a pawn shop and ends up kind of stumbling into a convenience store, waving her gun and attempting to rob it. And so, you know, there is this moment where 
this what we you know might describe as unquote normal or average conventional life she just can't keep it going and so she is arrested her boyfriend does find a lawyer for her they correspond for a period of time you know he visits her in prison she'll be sentenced to three years in prison so the consequences of you know her kind of going off the rail in this fight that nobody remembers what the fight was about it was something minor yet she began raging but they drift apart while she's still in prison and the way the story goes, Eileen then places a personal ad in a biker magazine. She's released around 83, and she ends up going to stay with one of her pen pals, a man who's older than her. I think he was like in his late 40s or almost 50s somewhere in Maryland. Again, there are these stories that you don't know whether there's any truth to them or there are anecdotal stories that she had told him she was gay and that, you know, they had to keep it platonic. You know, she played this for a number of um, months and then suddenly one day initiated sex with him, telling him, ha, I was only joking. Let's go find out how gay I am. Right, And then the moment they had sex, this is according, I guess, to the boyfriend, Eileen got up and started threatening him with a kitchen knife, threatening to kill him, and they had to talk her down. So, you know, by now she's wearing out her welcome with this particular individual. So we're just getting this portrait of a highly unstable, emotionally unstable woman that's traumatized with the things that happened to her as a child or her family and is uh, maybe suffering from other cerebral disorder, uh, behavioral disorder, but she is looking for something that she doesn't know what it is and is unable to kind of maintain relationships. I think very quickly, after that, she's arrested again. This time, police find a stolen handgun in her possession. I think she manages to somehow evade being sent back into prison by assuming yet another identity. She also, somewhere around this period, is beginning to feel or certainly say that she's gay. Of course, is around this time, somewhere in 1986, that she's going to meet Tyrio Ty Moore in Daytona. And here, now with Ty, a female, she'll kind of begin to have this more cohesive relationship. I'm interested in the role that alcohol was playing for Eileen, because her grandparents both lived with alcohol addiction, and that was part of the abuse that particularly her grandfather perpetrated was that he was often drunk. Was Eileen at that point, when she was having these outbursts of anger, were they alcohol-related? Alcohol, of course, is a depressant, and so it could suppress your inhibitions. I mean, you know, you have happy drunks and you get angry, raging drunks, and it seems that Eileen tended to lean towards the angry, raging, unhappy drunk spectrum. So Mm. certainly alcohol, 
I imagine pills were involved as all those things combined are going to exasperate any kind of struggle you might have to keep your emotions in check or to somehow work through your traumas and your rages. I mean, she is an angry, angry woman who wouldn't be. I mean, it's no mystery what's wrong with Eileen Wernis. What's her relationship like with Ty Moore? Was there abuse there or do you think that it was a calmer, more equal relationship? Here you get into that dynamic of couples. In one sense, Eileen is the dominant, yet in the other sense, she's very vulnerable to Ty. And I think in these kinds of relationships, you know, the chemistry is often shifting from circumstance to circumstance. I think certainly Ty was able to do work, be employed. She was more maybe socially uh, adept than Eileen was. At the same time, Eileen herself is kind of striving to be a provider, which I think might have to do to a great extent with some of the things she's going to do as well. She's found this home in Ty. She's in love with Ty. It's hard to say how much Ty was in love with her. I mean, in the end, it ends up tragically with Ty's going to be betraying in Eileen. But, uh, you know, whether they're a criminal couple or whether they're an ordinary couple, I think that the dynamics with all couples have this kind of mercurial shifting back and forth in power and who is dominant. Certainly, Eileen, I think, has a lot more to lose if Ty would have disappeared from her life. This clearly is probably Eileen's first, quote, successful relationship with another person, you know, romantic relationship. So clearly she becomes very invested in this, but, you know, she's got her own demons as well. They're living in utter misery in this kind of no man's land in Florida. I mean, we all have very romantic, tourist-like conceptions of Florida, but... In between, you know, the tourist spots and the highways coming in from the north, you know, Florida has these very seedy, tired, impoverished areas in it. You know, homeless people, you know, will go there the way they go to California because of the climate, get away from the cold of the north. So there are nasty parts to Florida, and they become denizens of these strip malls and hotels. Eileen, you know, she can't hold down the job probably because she can't take authority. Again, in a rage, would lose that job. She begins her work. She begins working as a sex worker out on those highways. You know, she had done it before. But now, of course, Eileen is beginning to show the years of alcohol abuse. As I say, I don't know if she was doing other drugs, but I would be surprised if she had not been. So all that takes a toll on you. So she's not what we would describe as, quote, the girlfriend experience in paid sex. She's hooking on the highways. She is rough trade. 
so to speak, the kind of clients that she is serving are clients who are looking for, you know, not a girlfriend, they're looking for a more degrading form of sex, a rougher sex, dirtier sex, if you want to describe it that well. And, you know, she is not only in the underclasses, the social underclasses, but she's in the underclass just among sex workers. She's working at, you know, the bottom of the pantheon. Yeah, you imagine that the people she's coming across aren't treating her with an enormous amount of respect. Her first known victim was Richard Charles Mallory in November 1989. How did they meet and what did she do to him? He picks her up. We don't know whether he picked her up as a sex worker, whether he picked her up as a hitchhiker. The probability is that he picked her up as a sex worker. She will shoot him. She hides his body under a rug in kind of this grove of palmitos. She shoots him four times in the chest with a twenty-two. Robs him. She takes his car and she drives the car back to where she was living with Ty and she tells her that, you know, she had borrowed this car and then she was going to have difficulty, you know, returning it. And then eventually she'll dump the car. You know, she wipes her fingerprints from the car. So she's very methodical there, except, which is going to be her downfall, she pawns a camera and radar detector that she takes from the car. Under Florida law, when you're pawning items, you have to leave your thumb, your fingerprint in a receipt book. And so, you know, she signs with a fake name, but the thumbprint is hers. And eventually there'll be a link. Another year down the way, a link will be made. So that will be part of the evidence. And that was only the first. Over the next 12 months, she kills seven men. How did she find these men? Were they all within sort of the sex worker underworld? And did she have sort of a method where she killed them in the same way? As far as I remember, Mallory was the only one who had a record of frequenting prostitutes. Although, you know, that doesn't mean anything either. All of them are found, you know, by roadsides, essentially, or in these areas near the highway, kind of in isolated areas. All of them are shot. All of them are robbed. In some cases, their cars are taken. We know that the second victim was on his way, I think, to his daughter's birthday. And he's found something like an hour north of his destination. So that's not quite you know, clear what goes on. Certainly, according to Eileen, all, you know, all of them kind of picked her up. Some of them, she said, she had engaged with them in what began as consensual sex, but that they had then turned on her. In the case of Spears, the second victim, Werner said that she saw lead pipe in the back of Spears' truck and that he'd gotten violent with her. And so she became afraid and, you know, she shot him. So that becomes her defense, essentially, that I was only 
protecting myself from being raped. You know, it's a very plausible defense because, of course, prostitutes do get raped and they do get raped frequently. It's a plausible defense, yet, you know, when we look at these victims and their histories, you know, nothing really turns up in their histories, as far as I know so far, that suggests they had this kind of capacity. So it's possible maybe she provoked them in some other way that gave her an opportunity to then rage at them. Possibly, you know, she's maturing. She's now in her mid-30s, like a male serial killer. You know, the average male serial killer will start killing around the age of 27, 28, close to their 30s. Certain kind of personality features begin to crystallize. There's a kind of a maturity in obsessions and fantasies. So perhaps the same thing could apply to this rage and as well, you know, the taste of blood theory, right? That once you've killed and you've crossed through that threshold, all sorts of new things begin to open up and capacities to express that rage once you've crossed that line, um, especially once you've killed twice. A lot of people are capable of killing once, and many who have killed cannot imagine doing it again, and most do not. But it's those that go on to do it a second time. You have now the kind of opening for the third, the fourth, the fifth time, the seventh time, and there's no going back after that. And now you get into this kind of addictive cycle. And so now she's cycling. And that's you know probably what happened. Every time she commits a murder, there's some soothing of her rage, but it doesn't resolve the traumas that left their injuries on her and the kind of comfort she finds in expressing that rage lethally uh, wears off. And that's why often these serial murders, again, female or male perpetrated, often begin to cluster closer together. It is kind of like a drug experience where you don't get the same kick that you might have had from it the first, second, or third time. By the time you're the fifth, sixth time, it's wearing off a lot quicker than before in that cooling off period, so to speak. And that's what makes a serial killer is that they have this cooling off period in between their murders. And so once that cooling off period ends, they begin on the cycle again. And certainly there's a kind of a, you know, similarity in her victims, in the circumstances, in how they're killed. I don't think certainly she's motivated by profit because she could have robbed a bank. She could have robbed another store the way she had before. I mean, she was a versatile criminal. So there was a lot of things she could do to materially profit with a handgun in her hand without necessarily having the risk of killing individuals this way. And, you know, it's not a very reliable way to, you don't know how much money the guy's going to have in his wallet. I think rage really was driving her more than necessarily material hedonism. You're listening to True Crime Conversations with me, Jesse Stevens. 
I'm speaking with Peter Vronsky about the life and crimes of Eileen Warnos. When do you think Time Moore began to realise what Eileen was doing? Well, that's going to depend on her recollections. I mean, right in the first murder, Eileen comes home and she says she tells Ty, I killed a dude tonight. And Ty, or as we'll say, was just kind of like watching TV and uh-huh, there was no reaction. So Ty is just rolling with it. I mean, they're living in kind of underworld. So it's not like, you know, they're upstanding citizens and, oh, my God, she committed a crime. I've got to go run and call the police. Eventually, she does work with police to have Eileen apprehended. How does it all start unravelling for Eileen? Ty and Eileen, eventually, of course, that relationship ends. It's not going well. The other thing as well as police now issue a public announcement that they're searching for two female serial killer suspects. So Ty is kind of being implicated in this. And so she flies back to Ohio, and she knows at least about three murders. And she had ridden in the cars, the victims' cars. She had seen the loot, you know, witnesses eventually are reporting two females in the car of the victim. Police are already suspecting Eileen Werners. She's actually under surveillance at this point in 1991. They're actually watching her. So this is not an unidentified serial killer out there. They have a suspect and she's it and they know Ty is related to her. And so they do track her down I think eventually they track her down to Pennsylvania, where she's staying with relatives. And Ty now begins to make this series of phone calls to Eileen, who's already arrested. You know, she's picked up. In fact, she's picked up at the last resort, this biker bar in Daytona. She apparently, when police come to pick her up in the bar to arrest her in that bar, they just find her asleep in the corner of the bar. And so Ty now is already making phone calls that police are recording where she tries to get Werners to incriminate herself. Is she successful in getting Eileen to confess to what she's been doing? Uh, You know, Werners, she promises Ty that she is not going to let her take the fall. And in those recordings, we already hear Eileen beginning to shape these killings as acts of self-defense. She begins, I think, somewhere in January. She begins to make confessions after she had spoken with Ty. Ty kind of left her with this impression that, you know, she's going to be charged if Eileen doesn't do something to save her. And so I presume in an attempt to save Ty, she begins to make these formal confessions. And she is charged and put on trial for what she's done, Eileen is. What did the court find about her mental state? Was she mentally unstable? Well, she was mentally unstable, but she wasn't insane in the 
parameters of, you know, McNaughton rules for an insanity plea. She was aware of what she was doing. An insanity plea requires that you're either not aware of what you're doing or you're not aware of the consequences of your act. Clearly, she's aware of what she's doing. She's, you know, covering up, she's wiping down her fingerprints, she's getting rid of the loot. So there's not going to be an insanity plea. She may be traumatized or, uh, you know, she's paranoid. That, you know, is not an issue before the court. She is capable, as far as the court is concerned, and aware of her actions. And therefore, an insanity plea is not going to work. Did she maintain throughout that trial that it was self-defense and that these men attacked her? Or did she kind of begin to falter on that a little bit? No, no, no. She begins to double down on it. And of course, she gets a lot of support from kind of ultra-feminists as well. You know, one that as a sex worker, of course, that she has the right to defend herself against rape. And that in general, you know, there is this kind of small a faction in ultra-feminism that argues, you know, that when women kill men, it's only in self-defense. Women are physically weaker, men are abusive, and therefore when a woman kills a man, it's always in self-defense is almost the argument. And here, of course, this is a little bit more than just, you know, ambiguous. Here you have a woman who is saying, I was a victim, I was being raped, and I defended myself. That's not what the court accepted in the end, because she was found guilty and sentenced to execution. What did it look like putting people to death in 2002 in the US? How did they put people to death? Was it electric chair or injection? I believe it was injection, if I'm not mistaken. Places like Texas, Florida, it's, you know, like a Roman circus executions. There's parties and you have both sides, opponents of capital punishment and pro-capital punishment people. By now, the feminists had abandoned her. By now, Eileen is just raging in court at the jury, at the judge, at the audience, in the spectators in, in the trial room. So the feminists are, are just fleeing Eileen Werners. They're the last ones to abandon her. You know, she's betrayed from birth to death by those people who should have looked out for her the most. And certainly, in the end, it was her champions. And it was, you know, people like Phyllis Chesler who urged her to take this stand, not to make any other kind of plea other than self-defense in the name of all women who are, you know, fighting off rapists. So she ends up essentially sacrificing herself for this last group of people who are, in a sense, sheltering her, and of course they too betray her in the end. There's that movie, that documentary film by Nick Bromfield, and he's with her at the last days, and Nick Bromfield's film just captures her. You just see how, in one sense, how warm and friendly and amiable she is, 
and yet at the same time you could see that hair trigger temper and he makes some comment that she doesn't take well to and she just turns on a dime and you can see murder almost in her eyes you know there's something wrong with her she's not insane that doesn't mean that she wasn't mentally damaged or mm. had something wrong with her and and in the way her you know, there were probably many ways she could have avoided the death penalty, but for people who kind of used her for their own political ends. You know, she was used all, all the way through, right to the end, from child cigarette pig to a defendant in a in a murder trial facing the death penalty. She was used, abused, and abandoned. And that, I suppose, is part of why her legacy is complicated. She died in 2002. Do you think that this was a case of nature or nurture? That's one of the biggest discussions because her father was also a criminal. But do you think that if her upbringing had been different, if it wasn't so full of trauma, that she wouldn't have evolved into this serial killer? I think it's a combination of both. You know, Eileen is not the first little girl to be abused and traumatized the way she was. Thousands of children go through what she went through. Some become serial killers. The majority do not. We don't know why. We don't know what that X factor is. It could be that, plus it could be the biochemistry of her brain. How much her life contributed to that biochemistry or how much Say if she hadn't been violently abused and she just became a dysfunctional secretary at work or a dysfunctional school teacher, would she have been homicidal, but would she still be destructive to what degree? All, all those things. So I don't think we know really kind of formula by which we can make or unmake uh, serial killers. Definitely what happens to you, it is an environmental issue, but it is also what kind of brain chemistry you might have as well, you know, when that thing happens. So, you know, some soldiers go to war and they don't come back with post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, most soldiers do not. Others do. So people will handle their injuries, their traumas, their angers, their hurts in different ways. And certainly, you know, alcohol as well, drugs, all those things contribute to your state of mind, to how you handle things. So certainly she's not, you know, in the best state all around. And then you have that old question too, in terms of what we know scientifically, it's still a little bit too early in the game for us to write off completely old-fashioned biblical evil, whatever that might be. And certainly what she does are evil acts. So, you know, will we have some kind of scientific definition of evil that kind of vacates the current supernatural aspect of it. I mean, we still see evil as something supernatural. We cannot really, you know, replicate it in a laboratory. We really don't know what it is. So, you know, maybe one day, but I don't think we know enough about the universe to be able to 
write off evil yet from the dynamic of serial homicide. Mm. And finally, I wanted to ask about the way that we look at female serial killers compared to male serial killers. With someone like Ted Bundy, there seems to be less interest in unpacking the childhood and maybe attempting to understand why he committed horrendous acts. Why do you think we look at men and women differently and do you think that's fair when in the end Eileen did murder seven men? I think there's certain kind of civilizational and evolutionary expectations that we have of males and females. The male theoretically, is the protector, the female is the nurturer. And so when females kill, it's very much difficult for us to understand that or even to emotionally connect with it because we see females, you know, as our mothers. I mean, Mm. my God, mom killed someone? And not just killed, but we're talking about, you know, predatory killing. And, you know, there are a lot of female serial killers, statistically. About about one in six serial killers that we know of is a female. They're much more prevalent than we realize, except, you know, I think females will kill for the same reasons male serial killers do, but they express those reasons in a different way. Male serial killers will sexualize it more than female serial killers. But it all begins with a need for control. It Often there is a trauma in the history. There is a kind of an experience that both male and female serial killers have of having control taken away from them being expelled by their peers, being rejected by their peers. And so they often develop these fantasies of revenge and control. The only thing is, is that men, once they go through puberty, boys, once they get into adolescence, begin to sexualize those fantasies. Females, not so necessarily. The other reason, of course, is is, is why we do look at them differently is, of course, females are much more successful at serial killing than males. The average female serial killer will go on undetected often, let alone unapprehended, for twice the period that a male serial killer does. Partly because, you know, some females are killing in places where people die in the hospital, daycare. They often, in female role, they have not only, you know, nurturers of children, but they're nurturers of the sick, of the infirm, of um, the elderly, of children, their own children. I mean, we have serial killers who are killing their own children. You know, it's a whole category. Munhausen proxy syndrome. The uh, kind of materialistic black widow serial killer really is is much more rare. And in fact, some of the black widows, you know, when you look at what they're gaining, it's trinkets. There's a lot more better ways of making money than having to go through the trouble of marrying someone or becoming their boyfriend and killing them for a bank account with $600 in it. And so often these kinds of material seizures are actually pathological. They're like a male taking souvenirs. Yeah. 
So we just don't recognize them in the way we do male serial killers. They're, female serial killers are called the quiet serial killers. That's what makes Eileen Werner so unique because what makes her different from other female serial killers is she's leaving bodies by the roadside. Most female serial killers leave bodies in a bed. Mm. She is one of the unquiet ones. Peter Vronsky is an investigative historian who holds a PhD in criminal justice history and espionage in international relations. He's written four best-selling criminal histories, including Female Serial Killers, How and Why Women Become Monsters, which you can find a link to in our show notes. True Crime Conversations is a Mamma Mia podcast hosted by me, Jessie Stevens. Sound design is by Ian Camilleri, and our producer is Gia Moylan. In the month of September, True Crime Conversations is doing a capsule series on women who kill. Next week, we will continue to explore the questions of what motivates female killers and how our culture attempts to make sense of them. If you want to hear more from me in the meantime, you can find me on Mamma Mia Out Loud three times a week as well as our brand new podcast, Cancelled, about who's in, who's out, and who cares in the world of celebrities.